We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Climate change, it evokes anger, protests and passion like few other issues facing humanity. There's a lot of noise to cut through and where we even begin our action to change things is complex and costly. But one thing is clear, Mother Earth's weather patterns make life dangerous and difficult for those on the margins and climate action is urgently needed. Here at home, Environment Canada says our country is warming faster than any other nation on Earth. And we'll hear from Canadian farmers and the new carbon tax on gas and what that tax means for you. And is there a spiritual responsibility facing humanity on caring for the climate and each other? We explore religion as a guide for sustainability. Well, a shocking report from Environment Canada says Canada's climate is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. And Environment Canada's Elizabeth Bush was the editor of Canada's Changing Climate Report. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Why has Canada been warming at double the global rate? Thank you for the question. This is, as you noted, one of the headline statements that came from our report, Canada's Changing Climate Report, that Canada is warming twice as much as the global average. And we do understand the reasons. There's a number of factors, but among the most important ones uh, is that um, generally as the climate is warmed, we've had a decrease in the amount of snow and ice cover, and these are very reflective surfaces. So as the amount of snow and ice decreases and exposes um, the darker land and water underneath, this allows um, more sunlight to be absorbed and that adds heat to the system. So this is a feedback and it causes amplified warming in the northern latitudes. And it we are yes. also such a large landmass that affects why we're going double the rate as well, does it not? Yes, that's exactly right. And uh, that is another factor. We know that globally the land areas are warming more than the ocean. So the fact that Canada has such a large landmass is part of the reason why Canada is warming more than the global average. Okay, so break this down for our viewers. How might this affect our lives? Well, climate already affects so many aspects of our lives. So uh, what we've seen already is that um, the climate is warming. So we see a shift towards warmer uh, conditions generally, as well as more extreme heat and less extreme cold. Um, we've also seen, as I said, a decline in snow and ice cover all across the Canadian landscape. Um, glaciers have thinned at unprecedented rates. Uh, snow seasons have shortened. Um, seasonal lake ice cover has declined, again, from uh, delayed onset in the, in the fall and earlier spring breakup. So all of these things um, will, will affect Canadian communities and uh, economic sectors. Uh, we know that the, the kinds of activities that we do and the way we lead our lives, we've adapted to the climate conditions that prevailed in the past. And climate change is really pushing us into new territory. And uh, we need to be prepared for those changes and to, and to adapt to them so that we can... So let's talk about that. What are the steps that the Canadian public should do now that we know the warming is increasing, we see the different effects, the wildfires will be part of that as well. What is the action steps? 
Well, there's really two parts to that, um, to the answer to that question, and that's we need to collectively reduce emissions of primarily carbon dioxide. This is the main pollutant that causes um, global climate change and uh, climate change in Canada. Uh, we also need to reduce emissions of other greenhouse gases, and we need to adapt to climate change. So it's uh, both mitigation, that's the reduction of emissions, and adapting to climate change, which is really all about uh, reducing the negative consequences and, where possible, um, taking action to um, take advantage of potential opportunities. So uh, one of the strong messages from our report is that it's this global um, cumulative total of carbon dioxide pollution that causes global warming and associated changes in, in climate. Uh, and so it's truly a global problem and the solution requires global action. So everybody, individuals, individual governments all across the country and around the world uh, need to be part of the solution. So. Okay. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Bush from Environment Canada. We appreciate that. You're very welcome. Thank you. I think it's a horrible thing to do in this economy. I think in a better economy it would be fine, but not now. The carbon tax has proven to be uh, effective against um, cutting down carbon, so uh, why not have one? Well, is climate change a test of our ability to care for each other and the world? To help us understand that is philosopher Philip Clayton, a religion and science professor. Um, Philip, tell us, how is the way we view our faith, our spiritual worldview, affecting the way we view climate change? Lorna, it turns out that it's actually one of the really central things that causes humans to takes climate change seriously or to be opposed to the very term. There's been a kind of warfare between religious and spiritual people on the one hand and science on the other. A lot of times the very word climate change has seemed like it's science coming into the realm of religion and telling us what we ought to believe about the future of the world. On the other hand, scientists are worried that religious people are the ones who put the brakes on the data and won't really listen. So maybe the starting point is that we've gotten our signals messed up and somehow we need to get that one straight. But there's a lot of people who are either deeply Christian or uh, have a spiritual worldview that would say, no, God cares about this planet, I do also. They're not anti-science. Um, what might that look like if they were engaged on climate change? So it turns out that actually the greatest force to motivate people to live in the world differently is their religion. Nothing will cause us to take on greater sacrifices, to give more of ourselves to others, to the planet, than our own religious belief. And it also turns out that virtually every major religion in the world, and especially including Christianity, has cared deeply about God's creation, about the world around us, about the sense that spirit is visible in and around us. So there's such potential for our traditions to take the idea of creation care and to build that into our own practice corporately in churches and synagogues, but also privately in the way that we live. You know, you caught my attention, Professor, because you're a Quaker. And, uh, you know, it is the Quaker tradition that, that spoke out against the great evil of slavery and changed history on that. And here now you have this small Quaker movement. Once again, you're reaching in to create an institute which says this, our faith in God actually means we want to change a global perspective. It's really that big for you, isn't it? 
That's true. And sometimes we need to be able and willing to break ways that we've thought about being before and sort of step out in new ways in leadership. To me, the, the belief in a creator God is massively influential for thinking about the threat to the planet. Okay, if there's a threat. Go ahead. If there's a threat. If there's a threat, then this is a threat to something that God created and God saw as good, which means that those who would believe in a creator God should be the first ones to say we care about this fragile planet, this gift to us. We want to think about living in, in it in different ways. And we want to use our religious community as a, as a basic power to bring about change for believers and for those around us as well. All right. Well, uh, Professor, thank you very much. Um, and uh, Philip Clayton, we've got your top three climate change personal actions you can take on our website. Thank you for joining us with your insights. Thanks, Lorna. The federal government is responding to climate change by mandating provinces to price pollution. This was announced back in 2016. The federal government's climate change plan said each province could decide how they wanted to price carbon, either through a carbon tax or a cap and trade system. And if the provinces didn't do anything by April 1st of this year, the federal government would do it for them. And so they did. That took effect in Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and New Brunswick. And people who rely on cars to make their living, of course, felt it first at the gas pumps with about a five cents a liter increase. I spoke with Dan McTeague earlier this week who told me people who feel this tax in both direct and indirect ways, take a look. Well, for the average Canadian, colder winter means you're gonna wind up paying a lot more in carbon taxes than what is given in a rebate. So not only will we see direct costs, but we're gonna see a lot of indirect costs, grocery store, clothing, uh, other items that we take for granted. When you raise artificially the price of fuel and you become uncompetitive with your neighbors, say south of the border, who don't have such a, uh, an onerous tax, uh, you wind up putting yourself in all sorts of difficulties. So when you look at overall taxes, uh, things like the carbon tax in Vancouver, not only do you have the highest tax for uh, gasoline with the carbon tax, but generally speaking, at 53, 54 cents, you have the highest taxes on fuel and in anywhere in North America. The minimalists out there who say it's not a big deal, it's a massive deal, and it's uh, really going to hurt uh, everyone's bottom line. And one industry who feels their bottom line will be especially hurt is our farmers. Todd Lewis farms just south of Regina. He is president of the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan. Uh, Todd, you speak not only as an industry expert, but also as a fourth-generation farmer. How is carbon tax going to affect the farming industry? Well, uh, certainly in, in primary agriculture, it's uh, what the you know, general public needs to understand is that uh, we really have no method of uh, when we get uh, a tax like the carbon tax that's put on to us uh, for, on our inputs, for instance, that... Uh, there's no way to pass those costs along. If you're a dry cleaner or a grocery store owner, you can, uh, if your prices go up for uh, the cost of your lighting and heating in your in your place of business, you can pass that cost along to your consumers. And uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, that you'll be able to uh, recoup some of your costs. But uh, in agriculture, uh, you know, in Western Canada, we're, we're primary producers. Uh, we're on a world market. Uh, our durum, our lentils, our canolas, it's sold into the world marketplace. Uh, it's in competition with uh, countries like the United States, uh, Russia, 
uh, the Eastern Bloc countries, uh, and, Australia. And Todd, none, you, of, none of these jurisdictions you, have the tax, so we have to uh, we have to to uh, set our prices off the world market. And you um, argue that you as farmers have already done a lot of changes uh, because of climate change. Explain that a little bit to us. Well, we've been adapting to climate uh, producers. Uh, we manage the carbon cycle. That's what the, the planting and growing of crops is all about. And uh, certainly we've done it for hundreds of years. Uh, everybody can remember the 1930s. It was a very dry period. Uh, uh, you know, we've adapted uh, to our cropping practices, our agronomic practices, our, our varieties uh, to a point now where we've had uh, record dry years in the last, uh, you know, 2017, 2018 growing seasons. Uh, certainly in southern Saskatchewan, we're exceptionally dry in some areas, and, and yet we've produced an average crop. Uh, I mean, those are all due to uh, adaptations that we've uh, invested in, be it uh, direct seeding technology, uh, better equipment, uh, fewer passes, uh, better water management. And, you know, in fact, we're, you know, and really in agriculture, we're, we're growing uh, more bushels of grain and producing more pounds of, uh, of, of meat with uh, ever uh, decreasing amounts of carbon, like a carbon footprint. So, so would you really say, we've done lots and we'll continue to. So would you say we shouldn't be this worried about making changes like the carbon tax for climate change? No, I think uh, farmers recognize climate change. As I say, we we uh, definitely think that uh, uh, climate change is affecting us. We're, we're seeing warmer years. We're seeing uh, different weather patterns uh, without question. And so climate change is important and we, and we need to... Uh, you know, believe the science in it. It's a science-based approach, and uh, I think we we also are saying that agriculture's done lots, and and really we can uh, we can add uh, uh, with uh, you know some of the science behind behind uh, uh, issues like soil sequestration of carbon. Uh, we can be we we're, we're part of the solution. We're not we're not uh, part of the problem. We're doing our part to alleviate our carbon footprint, but we have a, a lot uh, to give to the rest of uh, the country as far as. Uh, Carbon uh, offsets, or, or uh, you know, so tons that are uh, are sequestered in uh, in our soils and pastures uh, in agriculture. It's important. It's an important uh, piece that uh, we're not uh, being recognized for, and it's, it it should be used for uh, to meet some of our goals under agreements like the Paris Accord. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for challenging us to that new science rather than a new tax, Todd. I think that's what I hear you saying. <laughs> well, I just think we've uh, you know we've gone. A number of years uh, improving our carbon footprint uh, taxes. Uh, you know, it's the ironic part of this particular uh, method of uh, of uh, trying to manage carbon that we'll actually have less money in our pockets at the end of the day. It'll come right off our bottom line. Uh, in my situation, uh, you know, we've got costing looks like two to three dollars an acre. Uh, we crop ten thousand acres. That's a you know that's a twenty five thousand uh, dollar you know hit off our bottom line and uh, that money won't be available to invest in new technologies to continue our the improvements and good work that we've done all right well thank you todd canadian farmers are an important voice on this new carbon tax thank you thank you so do farmers people driving to work industries and governments need to choose between the environment and the economy stuart lg is here from the smart prosperity institute in ottawa stuart when it comes to the carbon tax is it the environment versus the economy no um, it's a it's a false choice we have to have a healthy environment and a strong economy and we can have both it's not an either or choice uh, carbon pricing is by far the lowest cost way to build a clean, low-carbon economy that reduces emissions and drives growth. It's low cost 
because putting a price on pollution lets individuals and firms decide what the best way for them is to reduce pollution. The alternative is heavy-handed government regulation that tells us what kind of businesses uh, to have, what kind of cars to drive. So you hear politicians saying they're against a carbon price, but they don't have an effective alternative. Mm -hmm. They haven't come up with or proposed another way that would effectively reduce emissions at the similar or lower cost because there isn't another way. So Stuart, let me there ask you this then. Uh, is, is a carbon tax the only option we have to take action? No, no, we need many things. We need building efficiency codes. We need incentives for clean technology. We need to have vehicle emission standards. Um, there's more than one tool in the toolkit, but carbon pricing is the, the foundation. It's what ripples across the whole economy and sends a signal to all producers and consumers. So the other thing about this carbon price is that the money from it is all going back to taxpayers in lump sum tax rebates. So most people, if they're able to reduce their emissions a bit, are actually going to come out ahead financially and have money in their pocket while they're reducing emissions. So let me ask you this, what practical steps can everyday Canadians take on climate action? Oh, there's lots of things. You can put a smart thermostat on your wall that turns the temperature down while you're out at work. Um, have your car well-tuned when it's ready to buy a new car, move to a hybrid car maybe, uh, take the bus a little bit more, uh, insulate your home, your windows. There's lots and lots of things people can do to reduce emissions. What a carbon price does is it gives you an economic reward for doing those things because you lower your carbon costs and you're going to get a rebate regardless of what you do. So you keep more money in your pocket. And, and the bigger point is, you know, people talk about it will cost some money to reduce carbon emissions, but the cost of not tackling climate change are enormous. Uh, we see them around us every day. You know, ticks are now moving up into Ontario because of the warmer weather yeah. causing Lyme disease. Um, severe weather events, the insurance industry's paid outs have tripled in the last 10 to 15 years for storms, floods and fires. Wow. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of the costs of climate change, it indeed which is, are going to be dramatic. It indeed is that tip of that iceberg. Professor, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, Professor Stuart Elgy, thanks for your expertise on this. You're welcome. Well, after our recent show on Mozambique's Hurricane Edie, where the link was made that the hurricane was a climate change disaster affecting the poorest of the poor, we heard from you in our mailbag. And our next guest is by request from some of you, our viewers. Scientist Patrick Moore is known as the sensible environmentalist. He's written about that in his book. Patrick Moore was part of the Greenpeace leadership in Canada for 15 years, but says he abandoned Greenpeace over truth. And Patrick, thank you for joining us from your home in Mexico. Um, you, you believe in climate change, but you're not alarmed like some of the uh, other scientists that we've uh, been hearing from. Why not? That's right, Lorna. Well, of course, I believe in climate change. It's been happening since the beginning of the Earth. And certainly far more dramatic changes in the climate have occurred long before recent history. Uh, and that's, that's why I'm not alarmed by the climate today, because nothing out of the ordinary is occurring. And uh, I've actually challenged... Uh, over the internet, on my Twitter feed, which has over 70,000 followers, uh, challenge people to name me a single factor in today's weather that is anywhere near out of the ordinary with the last 10,000 years. And I really had nobody that came up with anything uh, reasonable okay. on that because there isn't, any, there isn't anything happening 
in the climate today that is out of the ordinary okay, Patrick, with the last 10,000 years. Let's talk about two things that have come up in this show. First, Environment Canada. Environment Canada saying our, our uh, temperature in Canada is, is um, rising at twice the rate of the rest of the world. Why shouldn't we be concerned about that? Well, because that's perfectly to be expected. And it's not just Canada, it's the whole Northern Hemisphere at high latitude. When the world warms, it warms more towards the poles. It doesn't really warm at the equator at all. And when it cools, it cools more towards the poles. It's uh, overwhelming to see, um, you know, statistics like this one where uh, the data has been gathered, 97% of 14,000 different scientific papers agreeing that global warming is happening and we are the cause of it. Would you be in that 3% that says, that would deny that? That paper is a complete fraud, Lorna. It's been proven to be, it was not peer-reviewed. Peer-reviewed papers have been written that show that actually only 0.3% of those papers indicate that well, there is a dangerous change happening. Okay, well, we'll have to it, disagree it, on that, it, and we'll let our viewers follow the link to the Consensus Project because, uh, you know, those, those are 14,000 papers that were peer-reviewed, and they've been collected by... Yes, they were. Yeah, and, and so 97% yes, of those peer-reviewed papers say the climate is warming. It's difficult to deny it, but we're thankful that there's uh, that, that you're a good challenge for that countercultural point of view. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, as I said off the top of our interview with Patrick Moore, it was Cyclone E-Day that devastated parts of Africa that got us thinking about climate change. The World Meteorological Organization says Cyclone E-Day may be the deadliest weather-related disaster ever to hit the Southern Hemisphere. With 90% of Mozambique's port city, Bira, completely wiped out, officials say there are still hundreds of people missing, food shortages, and cholera has spread across the country as people have little or no access to clean drinking water. World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, and many other organizations organizations are on the ground and continue to work with victims of the cyclone. You can go to the links on your screen or on our website for more information on how you can get behind that good work we featured and how you can help make a difference in climate action in Mozambique. Well, coming up, an organization that believes climate action means recycling unmarketable food grown right here in Canada. Well, everyone doing their part to help our environment. Joining me now is a panel of farmers, growers, activists who care about our environment. Luke Wilson is from Arosha. He's joining us from Vancouver. Brenda Dyack of the Christian Farmers Federation of Ontario and Shelley Stone of the Ontario Christian Gleaners. And Brenda, you uh, as a group of farmers who are Christian believe you have a, a biblical mandate to care about the environment. Why? Well, we know that uh, our duty 
according to God, is to take care of our natural resources. And farming means that we have to disturb the natural resources, and it's our duty to do the best possible job of having a sustainable business at the same time as promoting sustainability of the overall environment. And is it a challenging idea to farmers to put it through a Christian lens? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, the stewardship of the land is tied to faith. And so we find that our farmers um, are devoted to doing the best possible and finding the best possible research to do the best possible job on their, on their farms because it is tied to their faith. There's no backing out when it's... Uh, hog prices are pretty low right now, what am I going to do? Should I cut corners on the environmental side? Well, they can't because it's a God-given duty to do the best possible and they stick to that because wow. it's their faith. Wow, okay, Luke, uh, Arosha, you've got centers across Canada where you help people connect with the environment, understand nature. Tell me why it's so important for Arosha to say there's a whole spiritual side to caring for the environment. We take the approach that uh, everything does come from this posture of God's love for his whole creation. And so we, we begin there with that posture of love and affection. And we find that the way to get towards love is knowing and belonging and connection. And the way to get towards belonging and connection is really through experience. So that's why we have these centers across the country where you can really get your hands into the soil or in the watershed or even maybe uh, uh, holding a bird at some point uh, to really experience God's creation because we find that that depth of experience leads towards love and care for God's creation. Um, and really it's about uh, bringing together relationships, whether it's us and God us and each other, or us and the rest of creation. And like you've heard already on the show and from others, we find that, that is a biblical mandate uh, to help creation flourish, all of it. Um, so it does come out of this spiritual posture and deep belief that uh, we are part of connection, we're called to love creation, and um, and that really facilitates all, all that we do. Okay, Luke, um, thank you. Science we research or environmental education. All right, and beautiful, um, beautiful experiences that people have there at Arosha. And, and Shelley, uh, from the Christian Gleaners Association, your statement of environmental care is like labeled here with Bible verses, and it's an anti-waste movement. Tell us about why that's a spiritual undertaking to recycle thrown out vegetables and fruits. Well, we're aware that it takes a lot of effort and resources to be able to produce the food. And when, when the consumer demands such a high standard of vegetables and fruits, uh, almost a third of the crop can be wasted. Wow. And so what we try and do is capture that and transform it into something that would be a dried preserved nutritional product that can be given away to overseas initiatives uh, for relief and development. You actually have 65 volunteers a day chopping up, dicing up our throwaway vegetables, yes. which really um, are, are, are not unedible at all? 
No, the quality is very good. It's usually the shape. So this morning, for example, we had carrots that look like a hockey stick or a pair of pants. Okay. Uh, or they're twisted, they're too small, they're too big. And we, once they're chopped up and preserved, they're a great meal for somebody who is in need in a, during difficult times. Well, terrific to see both from farmers and from a recycling standpoint of view that good work can be done. You can connect with all the environmental agencies that we featured on Making a Difference today for Climate Action at our website. Context Beyond the Headlines. Join us again next week.